Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play store. Know where you stand with OnX. David J. Meltzer. You know there's a writer named David Meltzer? That's got to be disappointing. There's a poet named David Meltzer. There's a medical doctor named David Meltzer. <laughs> there's but if a you, physicist. If someone goes to, if you go to, into Google and you write David Meltzer A, it autofills David yeah. Meltzer anthropologist. Oh, okay. So, not, not David Meltzer, the wrestling writer? No. <sighs> a victory for me. <laughs> uh this is gonna this is gonna break some people's some dear friends of mine's hearts, but you're the favorite. You have, we haven't even started yet. You're the favorite guest that I've ever had on this show. We can stop right now. I'm and good. You, you haven't started. <laughs> I uh, um, I'm gonna flatter you a little bit. You know how people will have in a, in a home, you'll have a coffee table, mm-hmm. right, in your center of your living room, mm-hmm. and people will position books there, mm-hmm. which are a combination of what the person likes and how the person likes to be perceived. Okay. I keep, I rotate. Well, there's, there's a couple that aren't yours. I'm a little I, sorry to hear that, but go ahead. Well, it's the photographer, um, Huffman. Okay, fine. So I rotate Huffman's book of photography Okay. with Ice Age Peoples in a New World with your Folsom book. Well, you I just... rotate them and I, and I put them there and it's meant to be like, this is my my this is like my ex, you know my expression of myself is that that I value 
David J. Meltzer's books. All I can say is you've just earned yourself the next two books. Really? Sure. Like I get them on the house now? If they're going to be if they're going to be on the table, you got them. I almost <laughs> brought them to have you sign them, but they're <laughs> but they're big sons of bitching books. Yeah, I do tend to you overwrite, could, don't I? <laughs> no, just they're, they're 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 full of maps and color imagery, everything you could want from everything a book. Everything I know when I finish with a book, I know nothing. It's all just poured out onto the page. Nothing left. No, they're yeah, they're amazing. And you do um we'll get into what your work. We haven't we're telling people all this without them knowing what you do. But um a wonderful job of of explaining really complicated things in a way that don't they don't feel remotely dumbed down, but they're still accessible and you still feel like you have like you're getting a very scholarly understanding of something that would be easy to trivialize. All of us in the business have an obligation to speak to the public that both pays for people like me and is interested in the kinds of things that I'm lucky enough to do. And so I really feel that obligation strongly uh, to write in good American uh, mm -hmm. that people can understand, which actually is a hell of a lot harder than writing for my colleagues. It's a whole lot easier just to use jargon because I know everybody knows what that is. Yeah, I got <laughs> And then it. when I have to explain something, uh, especially in regard to some of the high tech stuff that we're involved in now, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Oh, I hope you keep at it. Um, now I want to tell people, let's say you're at, you're at a, one of your faculty parties. Mm. We're here at Southern Methodist University. You're at a faculty party. You meet like an English professor and uh, you, you meet an English professor's husband and he says, so what do you do? You say? So I work on Ice Age hunter-gatherers. That's the sort of boring tagline. No, dude, that's, that's titillating to me. Okay, so what follows is I work on the people who are the first to come into the Americas. Imagine what it must have been like to look around one day and see no smoke on the horizon, no freshly killed animals, no sign of any other human being, and realize, oh, we're all alone here. And this place is kind of looking different than where we came from and what's over the next hill and what's over the hill next to that. Imagine what it must have been like to be that person, to be in that group, to see a landscape teeming with animals that some of which you've never seen before. Yeah. And you don't know which ones are going to feed you, which ones are going to cure you, the plants. I think you raise in one of your books. Which you ones are going to hurt you and you which ones are going to try and kill you. Exactly. Yeah, you have a hypothetical <laughs> scenario in one of your books where you point out something that's interesting is that people are coming from the north and had been, were thousands of years perhaps separated from tropical climates. And you're coming from the north and there, there's a guy, we don't know, a woman, a man, whoever it was, that was like the first one to encounter a rattlesnake you with know, no awareness, <laughs> no even ancestral awareness of what that was. You kind of wonder though, um, I mean, you guys surely have encountered rattlesnakes in your travels yeah, yeah. and there is something that, that, that hits your reptilian brain <laughs> that says, oh, it's kind of an interesting noise, but oh dear. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that looks like that could be, that could be trouble. Um, but yeah, imagine that and imagine all of these, these trees, these plants that, you know, you kind of recognize them. I mean, you know what a tree looks like for crying out loud, but what can that do for you? 
And that's one of the really amazing things about the peopling process is that after getting onto the continent and being here for 10,000 years, there's virtually not a single plant that Native Americans hadn't figured out its medicinal properties, its food properties, its use as tools. I mean, it's really quite remarkable how uh, folks learned about this new land. And I suspect they had to learn on the go, and they had to learn fairly quickly because they were moving with remarkable speed, archaeologically breathtaking speed across the continent, uh, and they were able to figure things out. Uh, can, can you explain that? Well, you know, let me ask you this. What's the best way, if we're going to get in, if, if we want to do a good flyover mm. of the peopling of the new world, what... Where's the best way to begin? Because I have, a, I, in, in thinking about talking to you, I, there's all these things I wanted you to explain. I wanted you to explain like Clovis, pre-Clovis, sort of the moving, like our best guess of, well, here's another thing I want you to explain. How for a while, the oldest accepted site in the new world, correct me if I'm wrong, for a while, the oldest one we knew about rock solid was down Monteverde, right, in Chile. Correct. Chile. Still is. So what happened between, the, <laughs> if they're coming from Siberia, what happened between Beringia yeah. and Chile? Okay, so. Where's all their stuff? Fair question. Absolutely So fair these question. are all questions I want to ask yeah. you. So you tell me, like, what's the best place to begin? <laughs> what we used to think was the beginning or what we now think is the beginning? Well, so it used to be tough because with archaeological material, you're getting what's preserved. And it's a crapshoot because we are talking about a relatively small population on a vast continent. They're going to be flying below archaeological radar for centuries, if not millennia. There's simply not enough of them producing enough sites that the odds are that you'll find them, right? So we always knew that the archaeological record, the oldest site you find, is never going to be the oldest site in America. I mean, the odds are simply infinitesimally yeah. small. But now we've got genetics and genomics. And what genetics and genomics can tell us is the point at which ancestral Native Americans separated from Northeast Asian populations and started to make their way here. Now, the moment they split from their Asian cousins is not necessarily the moment they headed to the Americas, but it gives us a maximum age. And we now know, based on ancient DNA and genomics, and this is work that's been done by quite a number of folks, but most especially my colleague Eski Willerslev at the Geogenetics Center in Copenhagen, and our work uh, has shown that around 23,000 years ago, 23, you know, plus or minus a thousand, we're archaeologists, right? Plus or minus a thousand years is nothing to us. Around 23,000 years ago, we have that initial split. So we know that at some point after that, they're coming this way. And there, there was no longer exchange. Correct. Yeah. We also know that, as you just said, we've got Monteverde and the dates there are around 14,700 calibrated years. So we now have a window within can, which can we you, can say... Can you real say, quick explain for people what that means? Ah, okay. So radiocarbon years, radiocarbon dating... Basically, you're looking at the amount of C14 that still resides in a sample after a certain period of time. And we know the half-life. We know how long it takes to disintegrate in a sample. Yeah, I, I'm going to annoy you here. Okay. Go even deeper. <laughs> the sun, like, no, just tell people real quick. People yeah. hear, this is stuff people hear their whole lives. They never know, like, what sure. it means. So the sun comes down. It hits our atmosphere. 
Yeah, right. Okay, so basically uh, nitrogen gets blasted, turns into a stable isotope of carbon. Normal garden variety carbon is carbon-12, right? And then you've got this isotope, carbon-14. Carbon-14 behaves just like carbon-12 in that it joins up with oxygen, forms CO2, gets absorbed into living matter. When it's no longer being absorbed, when that organism dies, the amount of CO2 begins to decay back to basically it zeroes out, okay? And it decays at a known rate. It's called a half-life. And the half-life of radiocarbon is about 5,730 years. So if you've got half of the amount of This guy's of carbon, not even looking at notes. No, I'm just making it up. <laughs> um, if you've got half, um, half the radiocarbon is gone, mm -hmm. 5,730 years has elapsed, right? Okay, so, and it just halves, 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 halves. Okay, here's the problem. The very mechanism that creates the C14 in the atmosphere in the first place, which is the sun bombarding the upper atmosphere and, and creating all the C14, it's varying. So at certain points in the past, more C14 is being produced. At other points in the past, less C14 is being produced. What that means is that when you get a radiocarbon date, you've got to say to yourself, okay, if this was a period when excess carbon was being produced in the atmosphere, it's going to give me a funky date. Yeah. I've got to calibrate it. And how do you calibrate it? Tree rings. Tree rings, when a tree grows, I mean, you guys have cut down trees, right? Um, you see all the growth rings. Those growth rings come on one year at a time. Yeah. Okay? If you date an individual growth ring on a tree that you've counted back, and we now have a tree ring sequence that goes back 13,000 years in change. I don't know the exact number. If I were to look it up, I could tell you. Uh, you date those individual rings, you know that that ring should be 11,348 years old, but your radiocarbon date tells you something else, that's how you know how much it's off, right? And so we have these really elaborate calibration curves. There's a, there's a difference. So a radiocarbon date of 10,000 years is actually equivalent to a real year date of about 11,700, okay? And when you, and today we're speaking in Cal we're, we, let's, we're let's speaking talk in, in basically like we're, we're, you're arranging it into years as we understand them. Exactly right. I'm going to give you real years. And the reason I'm doing that is because the, the estimates that we get from genetics and genomics are in essentially real years. I see. Right? Okay. Okay. So we've got the genetic estimates at 23. Mono Verde has a date of 14,700 14, real years. It's radiocarbon years just to kind of finish up with the example, yeah, yeah. is 12.5. Okay, so you can see what the, the discrepancy is between a radiocarbon and a real year. Yeah. Okay, so in that window, between 23 and 14.7, we know people showed up. Now, there's an issue there, because that window is downtown last glacial maximum, right? The coldest period of the last 100,000 years was between about 23,000 and 19,000 years ago. That's when we had these massive ice sheets covering basically Canada, okay? Two big ice sheets, one that goes from Newfoundland and laps up against the eastern flank of the Rocky Mountains, Laurentide Ice Sheet. It goes as far south as Ohio, central Ohio and Pennsylvania. It goes as far north as, well, it actually connects up with an ice sheet that makes it over to Greenland, 
Okay. Is there a point when a glacier turns into an ice sheet or? Absolutely. Um, it all starts with snow and it all starts with summer temperatures. And this was figured out uh, actually by a guy sitting in a prisoner of war camp in World War I. He was a, he was a mathematician and he understood that if you play around with the amount of sunlight and heat hitting the earth, you can either grow a glacier or make one go away. And the reason this happens is that, um, and it has to do with a whole bunch of sort of astronomical physics, um, where basically all the planets are constantly getting jostled. We like to sort of think of our Earth as, as orbiting in a particular way, and it's always been that way, and it's never going to change. And that's just not right, right? Because we've got all these other planets out there. So We've got the gravitational effects of the sun, but then there's Jupiter parked a few uh, orbits out there, and it's also affecting us. So at times in the past, the northern hemisphere has been closer or further away from the sun, which meant there's been more or less solar radiation hitting the surface. When you reduce the amount of solar radiation hitting the surface in uh, the summer, Last year's winter snow doesn't melt. The next year's snow piles up. And if it doesn't melt again, well, you pile that up to a certain depth, 15, 18 meters or so, it compresses, it packs, it turns to ice, and it starts to flow, okay? It used to be that there was about a three-week window in the far north between the last of the spring um, freezing temperatures and the first of the fall freeze. If you close that two to three week window, you could start another ice age. I mean, you have to close it sort of consistently for many, many years, oh, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm with you. Um, but that's how it works. And so we had this period between 23,000, 19,000 years ago where you had these massive ice sheets that had built up uh, starting probably around 29, 30,000 years ago and reached their maximum extent between that 23 and 19,000. Covering up ground upon which now lives millions and millions of Americans. There's a reason Minnesota's the land of 10,000 lakes. Those are all glacial puddles, right? Uh, Seattle had um, an ice sheet basically in downtown Seattle. That's why it's a great port, Right. The ice basically created these fjords. Uh, yeah. Chesapeake Bay. Why is Chesapeake Bay a bay? Well, the Susquehanna River had to, because when you grow that much ice on land, and we are talking about an ice sheet that, again, east coast to the Rocky Mountains, and then from the Rocky Mountains to the coast range, there was a second major ice sheet, the Cordilleran ice sheet. You put that much ice on land, where's all the water coming from? The ocean, Right. So all of that precipitation, right, oceans evaporate, precipitation clouds move over land, falls its snow, and then it freezes. It doesn't get back to the ocean. So when that happens, you're basically locking up about 5% of the world's water. When that happens, sea levels drop. And we know that sea levels dropped, and this becomes part of the peopling of the America story, right? Sea levels drop about 130 meters. So, you know, put it into feet, uh, several hundred feet. In depth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you could walk from Asia to America and you would have no idea 
that you were walking from one hemisphere to another. And the reason you would have no idea is that don't think of the Bering Land Bridge as this sort of skinny rope bridge over the Amazon River somewhere. No, it's a thousand miles. <laughs> you know, you look around and it's just a continent to you. That's, that was one of the things that really started to interest me in this world a little bit was when, when I started to get that because in every, um, every like American school child's imagination, the Bering Land Bridge is this thing where you like, it's like Moses going through, <laughs> right? The parted Red Sea. Like you pack your shit up yeah, and it's yeah, this yeah, narrow yeah. little thing and everybody's like, okay, ready? Yeah. And then you run across it, yeah. it, it you know, is like your, your sort of impression of it. And then to go up at what's now the, what would be the foot of it now, and just your, your Northwest Alaska, and you stand there and be like, you don't have any, you don't understand where the oceans sit. You're just out on this massive thing. It's a scale. And that's what life on the Bering, the Bering Land Bridge wasn't any more than when you're in Michigan, you're very aware of that you're on a peninsula. You're just somewhere... Exactly. And you look and that's at a map a, and you all of a sudden put it together, right? Right. No, that's a great analogy because it's a scale issue. You know, humans are small and the Bering Land Bridge was really large. <laughs> and you would have had no idea. And in fact, you know, there's no reason to think that people were only coming in one direction either. You know, they could go east, they could go west. And we're starting to see some of that evidence genetically that these populations are moving back and forth across the land bridge. It was trafficking in humans, plants, animals for thousands of years. Yeah, but you're right. But there's a point you bring up in, in, in one of your books. I think it's Ice Age Peoples in the New World. You bring up a thing, and I, I, I mentioned, I quote you on this a lot, and I hope I'm not overemphasizing it. But you bring up a thing where you said the movement of people, as, as people are moving around, they're moving quickly. And I can't remember if you say this or if I added it to it, but they're not like running from warfare necessarily like they're they're leaving they're they're leaving places that are sparsely populated for places that are sparsely or not populated at all and i and you i do know this part you get to this point where like you can't rule out some amount of curiosity absolutely like some like maybe they weren't like saying hey we're headed to america we're headed (laughs) to what will become america but they are saying they're thinking something or else you can't account for that they would have gone as far as they went. Well, let's put it this way. When, when Europeans started sailing around the globe, did they find a single habitable landmass that wasn't already inhabited? No. Everywhere they got to, there was already somebody living there. Humans have been moving for millions of years, but humans, modern humans, anatomically modern humans, they've been moving all over the globe for the last 50, 100,000 years. Um, do we know the exact motives? Not really. Uh, but I think curiosity had to have something to do with it, right? I mean, in any group, somebody's going to say, hey, let's go over there. Uh, but let's go over there also has a good, um, my, my now deceased colleague, Lou Binford, always used to say, for hunter-gatherers, insurance is not knowing what you have right in front of you. It's knowing where you go next when things go bad right in front of you there's an incentive to look over that next hill because... Even when things are okay. Especially when things are okay, because that's when you have the time and the resources and the teenage sons who are just driving you insane, and you say, why don't you go do a walkabout and come back in a month and tell us what you found? 
I mean, one of the really interesting things about where we do have oral history records, like in the colonization of the Pacific, on these remote islands in the Pacific, Uh inevitably it's younger brother. It's like, get him out of the house. He's not going to inherit anything anyway. Let's let him get in a boat and go someplace and and find new things. Uh, And so, you know, there's an advantage to that. Humans are also very good at surviving. And that was part of that, buying that insurance policy. Did you bring up, like, do you address this, or did I hear this somewhere else? That there's the there's the the idea of expansion, and you could say that you know every hill I come over, there's more game, and right, and the wood sources are down by the rivers, and no one's burned it yet, and it's just good living. But when you look at the landscape and, and the ice sheets you're talking about, there had people had to have come up with uh, up against what would be perceived as like a, a hostile environment, perhaps, and then jumped it. Without question. And in fact, one of the things that's really striking about the earliest uh, archaeological record that we have is that we've got stuff all over the place in a very short period of time. So we know people are moving and they're tracking great distances, but their distribution was broad. It was not deep. We are not seeing every single spot being filled in. What Mm -hmm. we're seeing is that these people were probably leapfrogging, right? Because they are paying attention to what's over the next hill. Um, and if it looks bad that way, we'll go someplace else, uh, go in another direction. So, in fact, they are moving um, not necessarily in a nice wave, expanding out, washing out across the continent. Um, they're looking for sweet spots. They're looking for the places that the hunting's good, the gathering's good. Um, it's a decent place to spend the winter, those kinds of places. I mean, they're all like us. They want to have comfort. They want to have food. They want to have security. If you, knowing what you now know, Hmm. um, I don't know why I would ask you to any other way, but knowing (laughs) what you now know, if you imagine a colonizing group, wherever, whether it's in Northwest Alaska, whether it's, you know, here in Texas, further south, a colonizing group, a, a group that's not likely to be bumping up against people who are already inhabiting lands ahead of them. How big are the groups? So... Um, This is one of the things that we've actually been spending a lot of time trying to get a better handle on. We actually now have, again, because of the the genetics record, we're getting a sense of how large these populations are. And, uh, well, let me answer it in a couple of ways. First off, the direct answer to your question, you're probably going to disperse. If a hundred of you come into the new world, you're not going to stay together as a group of a hundred and move all around. Why do, why is, why do you assume that? Because it's, well, a couple of things. One, if disaster strikes, that's it. End of story. Uh, but two, one of the most important things for hunter-gatherers is information. By dispersing your group, by sending out, uh, I don't want to say pods, <laughs> right? But by sending out smaller units of, say, 1925, kind of an extended family group. Why don't you folks go that way? You go that way. We'll go this way. And then, Never see each other again. No, no, no. That's one of the really important things. It's not just um, when you're coming into a new world, as one of my colleagues says, it's not just what to eat, it's who to meet. At a certain point, your kids are going to be a marriageable age, and you're going to need to find mates for them. Okay? So... One of the things that we've been looking for for a very long time, which um, must be out there, but we really haven't found a lot of them, are rendezvous sites where folks 
you know, half a dozen years down the road, 10 years down the road, they get together to exchange information, to exchange mates, to talk to one another. I mean, we're fundamentally social beings, right? Yeah. Are you are you going to weave into talking about the Lindenmeyer site? Well, we could get there, or indeed. something, or something, or something along <laughs> the Linden, lines. Lindenmeyer is one of the very. You don't nice... need to. I just know uh, uh, the, yeah. the idea of that. That when you say goodbye, you're not always just saying goodbye for forever. Oh, never, yeah. never, never, never. Um, but th- again, this gets back to you're on a landscape that nobody else is <laughs> is around. And one of the things that, um, and again, I keep harping on the genomics because it's been so amazing in terms of telling us about population history. At the end of their string, Neanderthals were becoming fairly incestuous and inbreeding a lot. Okay. And they were doing that because their populations were shrinking and they were scattered over a wide area. We now have this latest genome that um, Eskies group published, that we published um, just a few weeks back, one of the sites is in remote northern Siberia, literally right on the, the Arctic Ocean. Uh, these guys are out in, literally, it's the end of the world. These are early modern humans. These are not Neanderthals. And yet we see absolutely no sign of inbreeding or anything like that. They are going long distance to find mates. They are ensuring that they're keeping a healthy gene pool. So, yeah, that's very important for humans on, on an empty landscape is that you maintain these connections. So the With gr- no understanding of a gene pool. Absolutely not. But Absolutely. but humans but humans have a but humans have a tendency to They get that. Yeah. They get that. Um and you know the a, te- royal- a tendency to not unless like, like cultures un- tend to not want to be incestuous. Unless they're the royal family of England. Yeah. <laughs> we'll strike that from the record. No, no. <laughs> Keeping it in. So the, the group size. Right. Or the rendezvous site. Whatever right. you want to get to. Okay. So you want a rendezvous site um, that these are, these are mobile hunter-gatherers. They can only carry so much, right? So this is not like a potluck dinner where everybody brings a roast or something. Uh-huh. Uh, so you want to have a site that is easily located. You want to have a site that's on an ecotone where you've got several different ecological units that are sort of coming together. What's the word again? Ecotone. And it's basically where ecological um, biomes, ecotone, ecological zones overlap. And when you have overlapping zones, you've got greater richness because you've got all the animals and plants from this area and all the animals and plants from that area, and they're all in the same spot. In our, in our vernacular, we would say like where a bunch of good shit comes together. Something like that. You said it. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, because that way you've got, because everybody's going to be showing up and they're going to hang out there for what, three weeks, a month, who knows, right? Uh, but that way there's a food source. You want to have springs nearby. You want to have water. Stone, handy thing to have nearby as well, because when you get together, you know, you're sitting around, you're making stone tools, you're teaching the young, oh, hey, you know, we've learned this new technique of manufacturing these particular tools. Here's how you do it. And you brought up the Lindenmeyer site. It's a really important site because it might be one of the few instances that we have of a genuine bona fide um, a rendezvous site. Aggregation site is the fancy jargon term that we use. But yeah. Rendezvous is a lot better. And with Lindenmeyer, it's fantastic because it's sitting in a spot, a geological spot, where you've got this very nice exposure of a wall that has... Um, white rock and it's got red rock it looks like a barber pole and you yeah, can see it from 20 miles away we should point out that this site sits between denver and fort collins 
Uh, actually, just north of Fort Collins. Is it north of Fort Collins? Yeah, okay, about sorry. 16 miles north of Fort Collins. And it's now a, uh, uh, what's the Colorado program of parks? Um, C- anyway. C- CPW? Colorado Parks and Wildlife? Yeah. Um, or it's, well, it's, not a private, it's not a private ranch anymore? No. No, oh. no, no. You can visit it. Yeah, I visited it, but I visited it as a private ranch. Ah, no, yeah. you can you can now visit it. There's a little uh, guest area there that you oh, can really? kind of stand and look out over the site. It's very cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, but you can see this thing if you just you know if you're if you're there ten thousand years ago, you just tell your buddies we'll meet you at that giant rock barber pole. We, they didn't know what a barber pole was, but we'll go with it, um, and we'll be there in uh, two years, <laughs> right? And it's at that ecotone where there's a whole bunch of springs. There's a lot of animals, there's good stone sources, and the archaeology there, this is Folsom age, so we're now going to go back to our radiocarbon dates. Uh, the radiocarbon dates are about 10,004, the calibrated ages are about 12,300. We've got projectile points made out of raw material that are coming from different points on the map. So clearly it's, it looks like people... As far away as the Texas Panhandle, right? It looks as though people are converging on that spot from great distances. Absolutely. Carrying with them toolstone. Yeah, because one of the things that you're going to do when you meet up with people that you haven't seen in six years, um, one of the currencies, and I don't want to use that term in any literal sense, but you say, hey, you know, I made, I made these really lovely points out of this really nice material that I have access to down in, you know, 100 miles away. I'd like you to have it right? Um, it's, it's a bond. It's a gift. Now, obviously, all sorts of other things are being exchanged that we're never going to pick up archaeologically, um, but certainly stone, uh, because the amount of effort that these folks put in to making their stone was well beyond the necessities of the weaponry for the hunt. Yeah. We're, we're so... St- <laughs> Here's another problem. I'm so stacked up with things I want you to, to tell people about. We haven't got to... I want to get to that. You going to write it down? We haven't got to what the world looked like then. The critters running around. Okay. What was happening to those critters? Extinction. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the diagnostic qualities of their spear points, projectile points. All right. You got it? Got it. Okay. Quick, quick question about the Lindemeyer <laughs> site, though. Does it, does it fit the bill of uh, the perfect, like, ecotone? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, like you no, go there and you're like, man, year round this place would be bitching. I could I mountains could, to your back, plains to your front. Oh yeah, no, you you just it's a great place, with the exception of the rattlesnakes, all over the place there. And and they were they were they used they ate turtles and rattlesnakes and stuff at the site, didn't they? Um, and a camel. Uh, yeah, the, Isn't there a camel the, bone? Well, that well there's up? camel bones there, but their their archaeological association is questionable. I see. It was there was a bison kill there. There were at least nine bison that were killed there, um, and turtles. <clears throat> I would I would be surprised if they didn't. I remember. Yeah, I, I think that this is what I'm that you have whatever's happening in the years that they're not camping there, meaning that a rabbit dies, whatever. You turn up its bones, and it's probably hard to unless you see knife marks. It's hard to to know. That that's actually one of the challenges when you're excavating a site is that. Um, all sorts of extraneous things end up in a site, and sometimes those extraneous things are rodents. Um, and you've got to decide, okay, I've got a bunch of dead bison here. So when we excavated the Folsom site, we had a bunch of dead bison. 
uh, but we also had small mammal remains. And the question is, were they also eating the small mammals? Well, you look to see, uh, is there evidence that they've been butchered? You know, you, can you see cut marks on the bone? Uh, is there evidence that they were burned? Well, if the bones were burned, were they burned because the rodent got too close to the fire? Um, or was it actually cooked? Um, so sometimes it's difficult to decide whether species in an archaeological site were prey or just background noise. Yeah. Um, and in the case of Folsom, it was pretty obvious that those bison were prey because, well, we've got the cut marks on the inside of the jaws uh, where the tongues were cut out, probably right at the moment of kill, tongue being a delicacy, not to me. What, what, are, the, what, are, the cut mar- what, what are the cut marks? Oh, from the stone tools that sliced the attachment of the tongue. And you can actually see on the inside of the mandible uh, slices. We can go off to my lab after this and I'll show them to you. I've got them in the lab. Oh, really? I've seen the photos of them. Oh, yeah. No, I got the real thing. Um, (laughs) Did they do it the same way every time? Like they were good at it? Oh, I assume so. I mean, people, when you look at um, Plains Bison Hunters, uh, certainly in the uh, the more recent uh, groups, Tongue is a delicacy, and that was one of the first things that went at a uh, at a bison kill. We eat it, eat it, eat it raw. We eat like elk tongue, moose tongue. Yeah. yeah, like I say, not for me. You don't dig it. No. Yeah, I understand. I don't. No. I don't like lungs. I don't like brains. <laughs> I like tongues. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, what did it look like? All right. Imagine this. You've you've made your way over from Siberia into Alaska. You don't actually know that, but you're there, and you're looking, and what you notice is. There's all these birds, and they're flying off in a different. They're flying off in a direction, and you're thinking to yourself, "Well, all I see is ice, and maybe there's a little bit of margin along that Pacific coast. Those birds are heading in that direction. That tells me that there must be something down there. And this gets to the question you were asking about earlier: Are there places that people don't want to go? Well, getting from Alaska down to the lower 48 in those days would have been a challenge, right? Because you've got two options. One is that you come down the Pacific coast and there you're dealing with ice that is calving off into the sea. Um, It's going to have uh, outlet channels coming off of these ice fields that are gonna be choked with sediment. You've gotta cross these things. You've gotta work your way around these ice sheets um, and there may not be a whole lot of food resources. But that, that uh, route south actually opens pretty early. That route south is open by around 16,000 years ago. So you remember now, let's go back to, we've got that window between 23,000 and 14,700. Yeah. If that route south from Alaska opens at 16, that's pretty good timing in terms opens of Opens meaning ice-free. Absolutely. Fair, relatively ice-free. Relatively ice-free. You're going to have to wait another probably several thousand years before that interior. So there's another route south, and that route south opens when the ice sheets that basically met at the crest of the Rockies start to melt back. They start to retreat. So the one that sort of spread out from around Hudson Bay heads back east. The other one starts to work its way down the west slope of the Rockies, and now you've got what's called the ice-free corridor opening between them. We now know, however, that that ice-free corridor, and this was environmental ancient DNA. This is DNA pulled out of sediment in a lake, in a lake that was at a pinch point. 
right in the dead center of this ice-free corridor. And let me see if I can create a mental picture for everybody. You've got, a, um, you've got two massive ice sheets butting one another. As they start to pull back, they open at the northern end and at the southern end like a coat that has a zipper that goes both ways. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And so if you, you, you raise your lower zipper and you lower your upper zipper, they're going to meet in the middle. And that's going to be the last place that opens up. Where approximately, like, was that, that pinch point on the continent? So we're in um, at about 56 degrees north in Alberta. It's in the Peace River drainage. Uh, for those of the folks that have Google Maps want to kind of check it out. And those lakes, uh, we cord the sediment at the base of the lake, and you can recover DNA from all the animals and plants that were around that area. And right at about 12... In a- in a dust-like sediment form. It's mud, yeah. It's, I mean, you're not finding, you're not tapping into bones and stuff. No. Okay. No, no, it's amazing. You can find out, um, and actually, this is really going to revolutionize our our understanding of these extinct fauna, which I'm going to get to in a moment, uh, because you can see them even if their bones aren't there. It's just wild. And what we found in this particular uh, core was right around 12,600, boom, you've got uh, mammoth, you've got bison, uh, you've got moose, uh, you've got some species of fish. There's a seahawk uh, that ends up, uh, its DNA ends up in this lake. Now, all that's happening right at about 12,6. So what that tells you... And, if and prior to that, not, not much is going on. Exactly. So that, that corridor actually physically opens probably several thousand years earlier but because you've still got two ice sheets parked nearby, nothing's growing there. And it takes a while for it to get, you know, you've got to get the grass there, you've got to get the plants growing, then the animals are going to follow. And that was a study that we did, but a study that Beth Shapiro's group did. We had uh, her on the show. She's fantastic. Yeah. And, and her study showed that bison that were separated by these ice sheets during the ice age, so you had a northern herd and a southern herd, they get together around 13,000 years ago. Oh, is that right? So her yeah. dates are 13,000. Ours are about 12,6. So that's pretty consistent. That's pretty consistently telling you that that passageway opens around 13,000 plus or minus. And meanwhile, right? you already have people down in South America. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that tells you people might have been using that corridor, but they weren't the first ones there. And in fact, the really interesting story is, is that that corridor was used but it wasn't by groups going southbound. It was by groups going northbound. They were heading back up to Alaska. We have archaeological evidence that, and it's based on these kind of distinctive kinds of projectile points that, that we see. Yeah, in, that's on in our list record. of things it's to talk on, about. It's indeed on that list uh, that is telling us that you know, the, the, the movement in that corridor is principally on the northbound lane. And again, perhaps not, Perhaps not intent, like not like man. Let's go back up north. Well, because these are probably people that had been that had been for hundreds of years to the south. Exactly, but this gets back to those bison, right? At the end of the ice age, you've got a uh, Dale Guthrie, well-known, uh, remarkable uh, University of Alaska scientist, paleoecologist. Dale called it the Great Bison Belt. At the end of the Ice Age, you could walk from Texas to, well, Mike Kunz's site on the north slope of Alaska, 
and you'd be on grass the entire time. Grass. Now, if you're living in uh, Montana, 10,000, 11,000 years ago, uh, I'm sorry, I'm in radiocarbon. Um, old school. I do, you, still, do you think in radiocarbon? I think in radiocarbon, and I always have to pause and get it into calibrated. Really? <laughs> you're, like someone, like, you're like someone from Europe who's talking to Americans, and they're like, they, they do, they're like, let me think. Uh, yeah, 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 X, yeah. X feet, 10 feet. Well, and here's the issue for me on that, and that is that calibrations have changed over the years. So the first calibration, okay, it gave us one answer. And then when the next calibration set came out five years later, 10,000 wasn't 11.7 anymore. It was 11.5. I got you. And so I'm thinking, okay, when you guys get that settled, I'll start using calibrated all the time. But until then, yeah. <laughs> radiocarbon doesn't change over the years. Those dates don't so change. That's just how you, do you talk to your colleagues in radiocarbon? It depends who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to a geneticist, I've got to go calibrated. If I'm talking to a geologist, depends what kind of geologist, I'll go calibrated if I have How do you guys to. identify each other? Oh, it's a super signal. Yeah, no, you tug on your ear. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't ask. You just pick it up. Yeah, yeah. It's, you, know, you don't want to embarrass somebody by you, asking you them that. Sense. Yeah. <laughs> you just sense That's it. That's right, yeah. My C-14 <laughs> radar goes off. <laughs> hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick. It's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited 
photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, it's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app, and if you're giving an Aura as a gift. You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> um, what were we talking about? Oh, the, oh the right. Oh, so what does the world look like? Okay, so you get into northern North America, and um, it looks a whole lot different than it does today. You've got this vast landscape opening up before you. You've got aircraft carriers of the animal kingdom wandering past, right? You've seen mammoth before, but these mammoths don't quite look like the ones that you've been seeing in Alaska. They're slightly different. You've got large predators on the landscape. Um, You've got uh, Smilodon fatalis, which is the best scientific name ever devised. It's the deadly claw. It's the saber-toothed cat. Uh, you've got Arctotus simus, the giant short-faced bear. And I had a, um, a TV uh, role once where I starred with an animated Arctotus simus. My kids, I lost all credibility with them. Oh, even look. with them? Even with them. Look, that's on TV <laughs> with a cartoon bear. <laughs> yeah, not my best moment. Um, and 38 genera altogether that are on their way to extinction. Now, some of them but, were but, extinct. But keep, keep going with the list, because like multiple species of camelids. Camels, horses, tapers, peccaries. Um, a 100-pound beaver? Oh, yeah. Kind of kind of like a beaver? Kind of like a beaver. With a muskrat tail? Yeah. Um, and then you had, my favorite was the, um, the glyptodont, which was basically, uh, think, submersible um, Volkswagen with an armored tail. And you've got a glyptodont. It's about that big. Uh, you've got um, giant ground sloths, uh, four genera of them that weigh three, four tons. Uh, and, of course, you've got multiple species of elephant. Uh, it's a spectacular thing. And, and the, the thing that had always struck people was it looked as though they all went extinct at the same moment in time. Now... If you're going to have 38 different genera of animals going extinct... Can you explain genera to people? Ah, uh, so that goes back to the Linnaean hierarchy that you may have remembered from high school biology. Um, Species, genus, family, all that. Uh, And genus... uh, Phyla, whatever, yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. it's, It's... it's a word. There's a word that you use as an There's act. a mnemonic, yeah, about mnemonic, uh, King yeah. Philip uh, yeah. sits on... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's yeah. good. <laughs> uh, and so genera is simply uh, the plural of genus. Okay, so you've got 38 genera. They all appear to have gone extinct simultaneously, and you think, as many people did... Define simultaneously. 
well, don't mean like that's, a, that's you don't mean like issue. one Tuesday, right? I mean, well, no, that's the issue is that people thought that they all just died at the same geological moment. Now, a geological moment, you know, plus or minus 100 years, okay? But that's really fast. Oh, they thought it was plus or minus 100 years? Um, well, actually, 300, or, 300 years. I was exaggerating. But still. That's still. Oh, no question. No, yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a lot mighty of animals. Narrow, mighty narrow chunk of time. Well, and especially if you're talking anywhere from 100 to 200 million animals. Yeah. Okay. So, can climate do that? Can climate wipe out an entire... Well, literally a hemisphere, because you had 38 genera in North America and 52 in South America that go extinct. Could climate have done all that simultaneously, given that you were dealing with animals that live in arid and semi-arid environments, animals that live in the forest, animals that live as herd animals, animals that have basically live isolated lives in the woods. um, Alpine, sea level. Absolutely. Very different physiology, adaptation, habitats. Can climate, a single climate change, wipe them all out? And the answer is, well, it's kind of hard to imagine. Right? But, but here's the thing. This is, like a, this is a, where the logic a little bit falls apart. In this. It didn't wipe them all out. Chipmunks were here. There's chipmunks were, you know, it's like an annoyance to me when people say an Ice Age relic. So I'm like, we're Ice Age relics. Raccoons are Ice Age relics. <laughs> yeah. Mice are Ice Age relics. And, and actually, a, lo- a number of those uh, small rodents are still responding to uh, <laughs> recent climate changes from the last Ice Age. Yeah. Uh, no, but see, this is, this is where this needs to go. Everything died down to the size of a bison. Mm, yeah, no, except for the spruce tree that also went extinct. And the snakes that went extinct. And the oh, turtles snakes. That, oh, yeah, no. Oh, I but, shouldn't say down to, like, and then, then it ended there, but I mean, there were... Many animals that were bigger than that. Well, see, this is, this is where we're going because all of these animals thought to have gone extinct simultaneously. It couldn't have been climate. Therefore, it had to be people. It had to be fast-moving hunters blasting out across the, the continent. The Blitzkrieg hypothesis. The Blitzkrieg, the overkill hypothesis, all that nuttiness, right? You got a bunch of people- Oh, you're going to call that nuttiness now? Oh, absolutely. Tell me more. A bunch of people with sharp sticks <laughs> and pointy rocks at the end are going to wipe out <laughs> A hundred million animals in the space of several hundred years. You're kicking ass. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, well, what we've what we've realized it was like it's like now, the end of a Rambo movie. <laughs> yeah, Adrian. Sorry, wrong movie. Um, it, what we've now realized is that those thirty-eight genera didn't all go extinct simultaneously. So immediately, that takes the pressure off of finding a single cause. I got you. Okay. So now we can say, well, what's happening at the end of the Ice Age? See, there's always been this confluence of potential causes. The end of the Ice Age brings people into the Americas and animals go extinct. And so the assumption always was, well, okay, people come in, animals go extinct. They had to be related. Well, no, maybe they're both related to that larger trigger, which is the end of the Ice Age. Okay? That's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Okay. That rather than one being a symptom of the other, they're symptoms of the same thing. Right. And what we now know is that some of these animals were probably gone 20,000 years ago, long before people show up. And in fact, the majority of those 38 genera, we don't have any evidence that they were around when people got here. So got they've it. all disappeared. So there's no association. So we do have evidence that people hunted some of these animals. There are a grand total of 15, 15 sites in which we have reasonably secure evidence that people preyed on mammoth. There's about a dozen of those sites. Mastodon. It's someone that's pretty ironclad, like projectile oh, yeah. points stuck in its skull still. No question. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, mammoth, mastodon, horse, and camel. Mammoth, so, mastodon, horse, camel, and gompathir. So we've got Which, what's five. That, what's that animal? It's it's another elephant. It's a it's a sort of um, more southern um, elephant that is related to mammoth, mastodon. They're all okay. in the proboscidean family. Okay. So so tell me the ones again. Mammoth, mastodon, gompathir, horse, camel. Five. Now. No kill site of a saber tooth. Cat. No, no hemiakina kills, no camel kills, no horse kills, no, no giant sloth ground kills, sloth no kills. giant ground sloth, no, yeah, no glyptodont kills. Yeah, but that's the thing. Is that right? None of that stuff. None. I mean, none. I never read about it, but I never thought about it. I never well, thought about the omissions. If you're going to, yeah, that, and that's the key thing is that people you know, always point to mammoth kills. Well, yeah, okay, so somebody killed an elephant, but you've still got another 100 million animals you got to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got another 37 genera that you've got to kill off. But here's the other thing. When you look at the extinctions process in isolation, you've got 38 large animals that go extinct. Well, there's nine large animals that are still around today. Moose, caribou, musk ox, you know, things that you guys have probably hunted over the years. Those are megafauna in that definition. But more importantly, not only do we have these nine genera that survive, we've also got other genera that go extinct that are not megafauna. And in fact, even one of the megafauna is the Aztalan rabbit. The Aztalan rabbit was the size of a bunny. There's no way that's a megafauna, but it went extinct, right? So how do you explain that? They hunted every last one of them. Absolutely. <laughs> how do you explain why bison didn't go extinct? So here we have 38 genera yeah, that go extinct. That's interesting because they damn sure ate those. Oh, no question, right? Yeah. And we've got 38 genera for which we have virtually no evidence of human hunting and predation. S- there's snakes that vanished. Oh, yeah. Huh. Oh, yeah. And, and bison get hunted for 11, 12, 13,000 years and in mass kills, right? I mean, there are single kills of 200 animals. And bison, I mean, you can still order them at, at Ted Turner's, you know, Montana restaurant. Montana Grill. <laughs> Montana Grill. And it's, it's really good stuff, right? Uh, so here we have intensive hunting of an animal for 11, 12,000 years and they don't go extinct. Virtually no evidence of any hunting of any of these 38 genera, and they do go extinct. Why do we think humans were responsible for that? Okay, but when you were a younger man, not that you're an old man now, when you were a younger man, <laughs> were you an, uh, what's the word I'm trying to look for, an apostle? Were you a believer in, were you a Blitzkrieg hypothesis man? No. It really? made no sense So your, your history isn't tarnished by Blitzkrieg hypothesis. No. I liked it because of how tidy it was. Oh, well, that's why a lot of people liked it. And in fact... You're like, ah, okay, cool. Now let's move on to the next question. No, because (laughs) I... No, I mean, I do archaeology. And I know how many sites, kill sites there are. And I, I just, I, it, I never bought it because the evidence wasn't there. But people love, people love the idea. And another thing they liked about the idea, and this is going to take us way astray, and you don't need to even pursue this thought. I think one of the reasons people liked about it is because when you look at other... When you look at examples of human caused environmental destruction, it's nice to get, it's nice to, you look at all the, these horrible things that are going on now. It's nice to be like, this is nothing. Those, those people, yeah. the, the ancestors of the Native Americans, they were horrible. They killed everything off. Therefore, we should really give ourselves a pat on the back for not being so destructive. Um, I think there's a little bit of that at play. There's a lot of that. And I know that this is probably way outside of your field. No, 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 no. No, in 2003, Don Grayson and I wrote a paper in which we said one of the things that made the overkill hypothesis attractive was in the 1960s, it came out really in a big way in the 1960s when everybody was all about Earth Day and important things like that. And they used it as as a homily, as a lesson of look at all the horrible things humans have done. Well, wait a minute. This is one thing 
humans didn't do, right? They are not guilty of murder in the Pleistocene, right? So you're absolutely right. I mean, this is something that people were using for ends that the evidence didn't warrant being used in that way. And the tidiness. And the tidiness. Because it's so baffling. It's nice. Like, you know when you're trying to comprehend infinity, like in space? It's comforting if someone would say like, oh, no, it does end. (laughs) That ends. There's a wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then you'd be like, well, what's past the wall? But it'd be nice to just have to be able to stop thinking about it. Yeah. No, I've seen Men in Black. I know, you know, in the end where the the lockers (laughs) open and everything. (laughs) There's a wall there. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was a tidy explanation, but a wrong one and a, a badly wrong one. So how broad was, for how many, okay, is there a, is there sort of, I know that species begin and end all the time. Like there's things, right? We're, we're creating them, not we. Evolution is happening. Yeah, the, the earth is, whatever. You're producing things and things are dying. If you were going to sort of put some brackets around this mass extinction, where do the brackets sit? Well, it does Knowing happen. that there's that it's not hard-edged, right? The edges aren't. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, the process was probably starting um, as the last glacial maximum was beginning, okay? So some of them are disappearing really early on, and some of them are, in fact, making it up until 12,000 years ago, 11,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. Uh, it's smeared over time. It's smeared over time. And why wasn't it happening during the other cycles? Well, now that's that's the gotcha question that I always get. So I give a talk. I wasn't on, trying to do a gotcha. No, but I'm I'm glad you did. Yeah. In fact, you can phrase it as a gotcha question. Okay. <laughs> I give a talk about Pleistocene extinctions, and I give all the evidence as to why humans weren't to blame. And inevitably, somebody raises their hand at the end and says, well, "What about all the other? <laughs> what about previous? Oh, right. So I I make the point that there's all sorts of climate changes that are happening at different levels that would have expe- uh, impacted different um, different animals in different ways at different times, and so on and so forth. So we really need to get a better understanding of how climate change affected individual species, rather than treat everything as a block." It was alive, it went extinct. Let's try and figure out what was it about glyptodonts that they couldn't handle at the end of the Pleistocene. So I do all this. Well, well, and then here's the gotcha can, can question. Can you come around? I know you got a list going. Yeah. What was it about those? Or take something else like a mammoth. Don't know. Don't know, okay. They're okay. extinct animals. And because we don't know their physiology, their adaptation, we know something about their habitats. But here's where we're going to get past the impasse. We're going to get past the impasse with ancient DNA because now we're sequencing their their genomes. And we know now, well, for some species, we know now that their genetic diversity was collapsing toward the end of the Pleistocene. We know now that their populations were collapsing toward the end of the Pleistocene. We're still not entirely sure why this is happening, but it has nothing to do with people because it's happening pre-people. Okay? Yeah. So we are going to start to get those answers. This is a 150-year-old question that people have been struggling with. I mean, Charles Lyell, the British geologist who was here in the 1840s, wrote about this saying, you know, why do all these big animals go extinct? We're going to have an answer in the next couple of decades, uh, I would predict. Can I, man, I don't want to do this. It's not a gotcha. It's a gotcha. Ask me the gotcha question. It's a gotcha, but it's it's not meant to be like a bad gotcha. Sure. What about? What about? This is, what about, right? What about? This is a what aboutism. What about? Uh, I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but when, when they were laying, who was the guy that laid out the, the, the famous, he published the Blitzkrieg Hypothesis? Paul Martin. Okay. Wonderful guy. 
When they're when, terrific guy. When it was laid, so you don't have animosity. Oh no, no, okay. I, I I liked Paul. He when was it was wonderful. laid out, there there were examples like Wrangell Island mm. in the in okay Wrangell Island in the Bering Sea held on to them until four thousand years ago, mm-hmm. and it just so happens that mugs hadn't showed up. They still went extinct. They went extinct before people ever made it there. Oh, they did? Oh, yeah. I thought it was like contemporaneous no, with no, when no, people no, eventually no, no, did no, go no, there. No, no, In fact, there's some really interesting research that, um, well, Beth Shapiro and Russ Graham were just involved in on St. Paul's Island, um, where basically they showed that uh, these, these mammoths were surviving past the end of the Ice Age. Um, they were shrinking because basically they had... Uh, <laughs> shrinking, in bo- shrinking in body, body size. size. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. simply wasn't enough to support them. Sea levels were coming up. The island was getting smaller. Um, the, they were running out of fresh water. There were all sorts of things. And basically, they ultimately vanished. And I think it's around 4,500, Well ahead of people. Okay, here's part two of the gotcha. Okay, good. Uh, then I'm going to leave it to rest. Then they point out mm. that humans have always been mm. in Africa. And humans co-evolved mm-hmm. with... What makes you think animals didn't go extinct in Africa as well? I'm just. I'm talking. We're talking about. We're talking about elephants. Mm, okay. I am. Okay. For sure. That's a great yeah. point. That's a great point. That's. But that's the thing people say. I'm uh, not arguing this to you. Oh, I'm yeah, just telling. Yeah. You, I'm relating to you like an argument you're very yeah. familiar with. Yeah. Oh yeah. That someone was like, <laughs> okay, so elephants vanish virtually everywhere. Um, that they exist, mm-hmm. except these elephant species in Alaska, or I'm sorry, in Africa, hang on. It must be because they were used to people, and the people couldn't kill them all because they co-evolved. Yeah. That's a thing folks say. Yeah. Okay. I'm not quite sure that it really has much meaning, but in any case... Um, so you don't even like the... Yeah. Well... Can you do a better job of saying what I'm trying to say? Um, well, let me put it this way. Uh, my my colleague, Jim O'Connell, uh, who uh, worked with the Hadza okay. uh, in Africa, the Hadza don't describe elephants as animals. They describe them as enemies. They don't mess with elephants. Go back and read Teddy Roosevelt's encounter with a bull elephant. When he got out of the White House, he went on a murderous spree in Africa, mm-hmm. collecting animals. Uh, that's, that's a big word, but sure, go ahead. <laughs> he didn't... You're he, my favorite he guest. Wasn't, he You're wasn't my favorite eating. Guest. You're my favorite <laughs> he guest. He wasn't go eating ahead. that food. He was <laughs> stuffing it and sending it to New York to put on display. Um, and read his encounter with a bull elephant. And he, he darn near died uh, in the encounter. Yeah. Okay. Uh, these are nasty animals, and whether people were hunting them or not, uh, it's pretty doubtful, okay? But let's get to the, the sort of larger question about the climate. If you put the extinctions in context, what you see is that all sorts of things are happening at the end of the Pleistocene in North America. But, but hold on, you, real have, quick, you almost started saying something you didn't. Did a bunch of stuff go extinct in Africa? Some did, yeah. 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 Not as not as massive and as constrained geologically in geological time as in the Americas. Okay. Okay. Um, but it sure happened in Europe. In parts of Europe, yeah. yeah. In parts of Eurasia, absolutely. Yeah, no, we lose mammoths in Eurasia. Yeah. Um, you have massive range changes. Caribou don't live in the southeast U.S. anymore. Muskox don't live in Tennessee anymore. And they so did you, once upon a time. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you've got these ecological changes that are taking place. Um, biota are dissolving. Plants and animals are moving all That's over the landscape. That's a really landscape. interesting point about muskox I never thought about. Mm. The, I mean, if you... Th- it, okay. 
if they found muskox remains in Tennessee, you're saying, mm-hmm. and you look at the fringe that they inhabited at the time of European contact, you were, it's like you had 10 fingers. They were down to a pinky. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. interesting to think like yeah. they were probably close. Yeah. Could have been close to being gone or something, you know? Uh, well, or they just found their niche. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a very good niche. And in fact, they would have been highly vulnerable to human hunting and they're still around. I mean, what's their, what's their defensive strategies? They all get heads out, <laughs> heads out, butts in, right? It's like yeah. a faculty. <laughs> and, and it works with wolves, but if a bunch of hunters show up and they want to kill off all the muskox, well, they're, they're just standing targets, right? Okay, but let's get back to the larger picture. Massive range changes, uh, massive ecological changes, um, lots of extinctions. Birds go extinct. You've got snakes going extinct. You've got reptiles going extinct. You've got uh, turtles going extinct. You've got a spruce tree going extinct. There's, and Paul Martin actually tried to come up with an explanation as to why humans would have overkilled a spruce tree. They chopped them all down? No, um, it had something to do with forest burning or something. It, okay. it didn't work. I never heard about this tree. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and so all of these things are happening. So extinctions, if you rip it out of its context, it looks, oh, my God, this is horrible. Humans showed up. They must be the cause. Well, did humans also cause all these other kinds of things going on? No, it was the end of the Pleistocene. Now, let's get to the gotcha question that I wanted you to ask me. Yeah, the real gotcha question. I'm just going to ask myself. The one you respect. So, why is it that they didn't go extinct during the previous interglacial? Okay? We've been cycling through ice ages for the last two plus million years. Okay? So, why is it that all these animals didn't go extinct 125,000 years ago, the last time we had a warming event? Why did they only wait until... 10,000 plus years ago to go extinct? And the answer is, is that, well, some of them did disappear. A lot of those species weren't around during the previous interglacial. We actually don't know that much about the previous interglacial in terms of what we know about the last previous uh, interglacial is from deep sea cores. We have no idea what's going on in the landscape. We don't have good records of changes in the vegetation, Changes in the ecosystem, changes in the environment. Because it was all demolished by the ice sheets? Well, because we just don't have good, we don't have good samples of it. I mean, this is stuff that's 125,000 years old. You can probably count on one hand the number of pollen cores, vegetation records that we have from 125,000 years ago. There's just no data, right? So you can't say, well, they should have all gone extinct in the previous interglacial if it was climate. We don't know what that looked like. Right? We still don't know what this interglacial, this transition from the Ice Age to the not Ice Age, we're still not fully aware of this, and we won't be aware of its effects on these animals until we do each of these animals individually. Because we've got to figure out what is it about a glyptodont that it couldn't handle? What is it about the giant beaver that it couldn't handle? What might be an example? Like, any example. Okay. And then, and then we'll move on to our checklist. But what might be any example of when you say that it couldn't handle it? So one of the things that happens at the end of the Ice Age is that um, obviously it gets warmer and there's a change in the composition of the plains grassland. Grass is grass, right? When you look at it, when it's on your lawn uh, or whatever. But in fact, there's very distinctive kinds of grass species that occupy, that, that create that landscape of the Great Plains. Um, and they're designated by particular carbon pathways. They're C3 grasses, C4 grasses. These are grasses that grow predominantly in the summer, and then there's winter grasses. 
Well, at the end of the Pleistocene, C4 grasses, and this is a hypothesis that I've sort of kicked around for a few years, and I'm, and I'm still not convinced it's correct, uh, and definitely needs testing, but you wanted a, a, a for instance. At the end of the Pleistocene, the plains grassland becomes dominantly C4. Now, C4 grasses um, have uh, anti-herbivory toxins. They taste terrible. And um, they are not easily digested unless, well, one of the principal C4 grasses is buffalo grass. Buffalo love the stuff. Okay. Mammoth, they don't have the same kind of gut systems that bison do. And so they're on a landscape where the resources to them, the food forage to them is shrinking, right? And it's becoming more toxic to them. Uh, well, the expanding grasses are becoming more toxic to yeah, them. Yeah, okay. uh, And suddenly they're getting outcompeted by bison. Bison populations are expanding. Mammoth, horse, camel, they can't cope. One other possibility that people have suggested, which, um, again, it's going to be hard to tell and test until we get that really high-resolution data. But imagine this. You're in the middle of an ice age, um, and for a variety of reasons, ice age um, climates were more equable. And by that, what we mean is that you had cooler summers, warmer winters. Nowadays, out on the central part of North America, we have really hot summers and really cold winters. Okay? During the Pleistocene, it actually wasn't so bad for a variety of reasons, not least that you had this massive ice sheet parked over Canada blocking cold Arctic air from coming south. Yeah, when you say the extremes, I mean, you could live in a northern tier state and you live in a... You live in something that can very consistently swing 120 degree temperature swings. Absolutely. Negative, like it's not unusual to get a negative 20 winter day and it's not unusual to get over 100 summer day. You've been in North Dakota. Yeah. So now what that means is that if, if you're an elephant and you've been producing calves and it takes you 22 months to grow another elephant and, and have that elephant child, um, you've been used to having that elephant in, say, March. Well, during the Pleistocene, March wasn't so bad. But what happens when that climate shifts from a more equable to a more continental big swing in temperature? Suddenly, March, instead of being, you know, it's kind of almost spring. Well, is the word you're saying, when you say equable... Equable, E-Q-U-A-B-L-E. Equator-like. Equ exactly. I thought you were saying equitable, meaning equal. But, yeah. And yeah. then continental... Continental is really strong swings in temperature. Okay, so cool. San, I got you. San Francisco versus North Dakota. Right. Okay. So you've been you've been birthing baby mammoths uh, all this time in March, and suddenly March it's damn cold, freezing. There's nothing to eat, and the and the baby dies. Well, it takes you another 22 months to make another one. You can't respond that quickly. And then how many ever years to bring it? For it to achieve sexual maturity, right? Well, exactly yeah. right. And how many are you going to have over the course of a reproductive lifetime? Four? Five? You know, you, you sort of knock them, knock the knees out from under them in terms of their reproductive cycle. And yeah, you can drive them extinct pretty quickly. But these are just, you know, sort of arm wavy things. Oh, no, I understand that you're just like, yeah. I, 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 we upon, don't know. Upon request, you're taking yeah. shots at what, Absolutely. Like what sorts of things could Absolutely. have gone on. Yeah, no, I'm the first to admit, you know, people say, well, you've got to have a climate alternative if you're going to say it's not overkill. Well, no, I don't. 
because <laughs> we don't have the evidence. We know the kinds of things that we need, but we don't have any of that evidence as yet, and we need to get it. So there's pressure to, to cleanly replace the Blitzkrieg or the overkill hypothesis. Someone would want you to be like, okay, if not that, then prove... Oh, yeah. No, I'd love to have an answer for him. Uh, but this is, this is the thing. I think in, in 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, we are going to have those answers, and it's going to come at the molecular level. It's going to come out of the DNA. Yeah. That's the cool thing. Not hunting arrowheads. No, no. We're still going to be doing it, but <laughs> that's not where the answer is going to be. Can we, can we jump to projectile points? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, lay it out. The... the the obsession with them in the early years of your discipline, I was like, it was like this diagnostic tool. Yeah. And, and talk about that a little bit. However, well, whatever's, that, whatever's actually, the best way to approach yeah, it. Yeah, no, that's a really good way to describe it, to use the term diagnostic, because um, these are artifacts. I mean, these folks had all sorts of tools, right? We have fixated on that class of projectile points, their weaponry, because... They invested a lot of effort in it. They invested a lot of effort in the manufacture. They invested a lot of effort in finding the right stone, uh, in hafting it, uh, attaching it to the, the end of a spear. Um, and they were doing, as, as I mentioned earlier, they spent more effort on it than was warranted by the task at hand. Mm-hmm. Okay? You, you, feel that's, you feel that's true? You know... Um, like it was fancier than it needed to be. You, you can't help but look at some of the stonework and some of the ways in which they flaked their artifacts to match up with, you know, lines in the stone or bands or anything like that. And you can't help but think that's a human on the other side of that. Uh-huh. Somebody was looking at that and had, I mean, look, when you guys go out hunting, you have particular weapons, you take care of them. You might, I don't know, what do you do to sort of dress up your, your guns? Or your bows. I mean, well, you'd accessorize it, but nothing. Then, well, I'm probably not looking at it right. Someone else might look at it and think that there are aesthetic modifications, but off the top of my head, I don't think of. Yeah. Okay. But if you're if you're living on a landscape where you have relatively little material culture around you, yeah. right? And one of the things that's emblematic of your group is to make these project these projectile points in a particular way. Um, you're going to invest in those things because you want people to see you're a member of the group, you're a good flint napper, you've been places, you've collected this really cool stone, and because you're investing in that, you as a, an ancient hunter-gatherer, we as archaeologists can use that because the style and the stylistic attributes that they are adding to their weaponry, the stuff that goes beyond what's necessary to kill that animal is diagnostic of time and of group and of space. Yeah, like if someone's listening and you grab your phone and look, you know, type up Folsom Point, mm. go to images, and it's... It's distinctive. It's, it's yeah. You, the minute you look, you'd be like, oh, I get it. Yep. There's nothing that looks like that. Nothing at all. And so um, it's helpful to us. So the reason we have this fixation, and it's, it's not always a healthy fixation, but the reason we have this fixation on their projectile points is that they tell us so much, okay? And especially in the absence of radiocarbon dating, you know you've got a Folsom site if you've got these points, unless 
you know, you were just darn unlucky and somebody happened to have found a Folsom Point and brought it into a Pueblo, <laughs> in which case you're going to have to say, well, that probably doesn't belong there. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the downside of that is that we've been uh, neglectful of all the other tools in the toolkit, which are doing most of the work. You know, the scrapers, the knives, the gravers, uh, the drills, the awls. How many tools might someone have had? Like, like, a, like an Ice Age family, what, they, what might they have had? Golly. Um, you know, the answer is probably in some of the um, burial caches that we have where uh, individuals had died and somebody basically left their toolkit with them. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's a, a well-known site, uh, Crowfield in Ontario. And off the top of my head, I'm thinking several dozen, um, and I could be quite mistaken about the number, uh, bifaces and scrapers and points were found with the no no actual physical human remains were found, but there was a kind of a burned area, so it looked as though it was a uh, a cremation burial, and the only thing that survives is the stone, and of course the stone got put in the cremation, so it it popped and crazed and and broke um, but yeah, you could probably i mean stone may actually have been the least of the things that you had to deal with as you're, as you're schlepping across the landscape. Uh, you know, are you bringing material for building structures? Uh, are you carrying children? Uh, all that stuff. Yeah, cordage, clothing, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Bone, well, bone products. And I'm glad you mentioned cordage because, in fact, um, the, we may be missing the vast majority of their tools. There are sites that, uh, where preservation is really, really good and the number of non-stone artifacts, wood uh, artifacts in particular, uh, by a factor of six, six times more of that stuff than there is of stone tools. We get fixated on stone tools because <laughs> that's all we got. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay. It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy 
to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. One of the things you, you get at uh, in your book Folsom is you talk about the, the Folsom type site and what the people who first dug it were looking for. They wanted big bones and big stone tools. <laughs> well, first they just and wanted everything big bones. else went into a pile, right? <laughs> yeah, because it wasn't of interest. And yeah. then, then you be, later became like really inter- like all the stuff that they weren't paying attention to that was so instructive. They uh, this was the 1920s, and what they really wanted first off was just a uh, a bison to put on display. So these were museum folks out of Denver, and they just wanted to find a bison that they could re-articulate and put on display. And up until about 10 years ago... Because it doesn't ago, look like the ones we have now. Much bigger. Much bigger. And up until about 10 years ago, you could see it at, at what was then the Colorado Museum of Natural History, which is now the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And then when they realized artifacts were there, uh, the site became especially important to a broader audience because those bison were extinct. And in those pre-radiocarbon days, when you had no way of determining how old something was, if you found an artifact wedged between the ribs of a now extinct animal, you knew that somebody had been around at the time that animal was alive. And so Folsom became terribly important in 1927 because it was the very first site where you could definitively say there was a hunter there was a an ice age animal and that hunter killed that ice age animal and then they just you know that's it we're done <laughs> uh and 70 years later when we went back to the site there were so many fundamental questions that hadn't been answered in the 1920s because well they just wanted to find out how old it was i wanted to find out what was the environment like what was the site like what were the activities that took place there Uh, How many animals were killed? What was the season of the year? Uh, Did they camp there? Did they spend uh, a winter there? Uh, And ultimately, uh, we spent three years excavating there and 
got a lot out of the site. The site's very famous, not because of what we did there, <laughs> but because of its role in the history of archaeology. Uh, but we were really pleased to be able to go back there and, and learn a lot more about it. We're off. We're, we're way off projectile points, but oh, you, right. you tell the story. But in your book, you tell the story of George McJunkin. Yes. The guy that, that, that found it. He was a free, he, am I right that he was, he was a freed slave or the son of a freed slave? George McJunkin was born a slave in pre-Civil War Texas, and he took the name McJunkin uh, from his owner. And after the Civil War, he made his way into northeastern New Mexico. And George, George must have been a remarkable man because uh, after the great flood of Folsom, which cut this arroyo, incised it deeply and exposed the bones, George was doing what every good cowboy uh, does after a storm. He went out and he was checking his fence lines. And he looked down in what was probably about a 12-foot deep cut and saw bones. Now, um, I think a lot of cowboys looking down, seeing bones, would have just said, oh, bones, and kept going. George got off his horse, and he went down into the arroyo, and he looked at the bones, and he said to himself, we assume, these are not cow bones. These are buffalo bones, and they're really big. And we know he thought something about them because he told people about them. George was an amateur naturalist. When you see pictures of George, there's very few of them, but in one of them, he's on his horse, and in the um, scabbard where you keep your rifle, he had a telescope. Yeah. Well, he wasn't interested in shooting coyotes. He was interested in seeing what he could see with his telescope. So he made frequent trips over to Raton, and there was a sort of a kindred spirit there, a fellow by the name of Carl Schwaheim, who was the blacksmith in the village of Raton. And Carl had a wonderful fountain outside his house where two uh, male bull elks had gotten into mortal combat. Their antlers had locked and they died. And Carl thought that was pretty cool, so he made a fountain out of it, out of the racks. And George would stop by and, and talk to Carl. And, and he told Carl, he said, you know, on this ranch, on the Crowfoot Ranch where I've been working, where I'm the ranch foreman, I've, I found these old bones. And it took years, but Carl finally got up there, uh, sadly, after um, McJunkin died. Yeah, I, I uh, went to this site and wrote a piece about McJunkin. And Did you a, really? Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, it was kind of the thing that happened is that he so desperately wanted someone to come look, yeah. and then he dies, and they finally go look. Yeah. <laughs> and they're yeah. like, holy shit, this guy found something really interesting. <laughs> well, so they took the bones up to Denver, and they said, you know, hey, there's, there's a bunch of bison bones. And so that's when Denver got interested, the museum, to say, oh, sure, we could use one for display. Uh, and so that's, they subsequently went down there, but again, a few years later, uh, and started excavating and then realized, uh-oh, this isn't just a bunch of bones. There's actually stone tools down here. What's going on? That's when they started. And in fact, Carl Schwaheim, our village blacksmith, was hired to do the excavations. So he, was, he spent the summer of 1926 working largely by himself. And I can tell you from having dug that site that it was hard work. He had to dig through about nine or 10 feet of lake clays, which if you've ever tried to shovel that stuff, it's hard, hard work. Uh, but he got down to the bone bed. Uh, he exposed it. Unfortunately, that first summer, uh, the artifact that he found popped out of the ground before he had a chance to see where it came from. But everybody got all excited and they said, next year, go back, 
excavate again, but be more careful. <laughs> and, and that was the year that uh, he, he exposed something, realized it was in place, realized it was literally between two ribs, and stop the presses or <laughs> stop all activity, alert the press, get everybody out here. And folks came and witnessed it in place. It was literally one of those things where you, you sort of, you lay your hands on it and say, okay, this is real. Yeah. Uh, and one of the people that came to see it was a fellow by the name of A.V. Kidder, who was at the time a god in the discipline. He was one of the most famous archaeologists in North America. He came, he saw, he blessed it. And, and it's a comment about the way science works. When somebody of that status looks at that site and says, I'm a believer, what are you going to say? What you say is, I'm with him. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Uh, and so from that moment on, Folsom became sort of the anchor point of the first people into the Americas with their very distinctive Folsom points. Oh, you know what? You stole it because I was going to do, re- <laughs> I was gonna do a remarkable bit of hosting where I brought us back to projectile points, but point by, by pointing out that that name, the town of Folsom, New Mexico, was then bestowed upon That's right. the projectile point that was found there, the very diagnostic Folsom point. Exactly right. Well done on as a host. Yeah. Well, I was going to do that, and then you did it. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so, Folsom Point, like in the projectile point conversation, mm. people used to there. There was Folsom Point, and everyone agreed that Folsom came after Clovis. Mm, they didn't know that yet. They didn't know that. Okay. So Clovis gets discovered uh, about half a dozen years later, and uh, at first they weren't sure what to do with it because they looked at Clovis points. Now, Folsom points are really nice and thin. They're very sharp. They're very well made. You look at Clovis points, and they're kind of larger and clunkier and thicker, and you think to yourself... It's like an F-150 in a Porsche. Exactly. So you think, okay, well, the clunkier ones, they must have... Maybe they came later. Everybody sort of forgot what they were doing. No. <laughs> um, they, didn't, they didn't know the relative age of these things. Yeah. And it wasn't until about five years into the excavations at, at the Clovis site which took place between 1933 and about 1938, that they finally realized that Clovis points were being found below the levels in which Folsom points were being found. And so therefore... Oh, but where are they both found? Ah, at the Clovis gravel pit. What, what were people doing there? Hanging out, You're killing animals. That, that someone dropped a Folsom point, and then thousands of years later... A guy drops a Clovis point? No, first they drop a Clovis point. I'm then, sorry. Then sorry. several thousand yeah, years later. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, th- okay, so you're out on the high plains. Uh, you've been out on the high plains, right? It's not a lot of water. The Clovis site is one of those wonderful spring-fed oases in the middle of a vast semi-arid environment. Every animal <laughs> you know, within a certain radius is going to come out there for a drink. Hunters were using that spot for thousands and thousands of years. And so... They would just be drawn to it. They were drawn to it. And the first folks that were drawn to it were Clovis people. And then 500... And they killed some mammoths in there. uh, They scavenged some mammoths. And some of them they killed. One of the things that's really interesting, people make a big deal about folks hunting elephants. And, you know, you get this romantic image in your head of a bunch of brave guys with sharp pointy sticks killing this trumpeting animal. Oh, it's burned in my mind. Oh, there you go. It's burned in my mind. Well, several of the mammoths at, um, at the Clovis site had already died. 
And we know this because <laughs> they were literally prying apart their feet uh, after the rigor mortis had set in. They were scavenging the carcasses. They weren't killing these things. Now, some of them were genuinely killed, right? We have, we have absolutely unequivocal evidence that people did kill these elephants, Yeah, because right? there, there was a skull with a projectile point, but then that was questioned, right? A like, skull with a projectile. Isn't it you're, like you're a thing to... that's stuck in its eye socket? But then later people thought that it was just, that some, someone just did it after the fact. Uh, they came out of the Blackwater draw site. This doesn't, I mean, you know better than me. Yeah, I know. You're going to have to home a few more bars before I get that one. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, okay. I've so, heard all right. So, <laughs> I, 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 okay. What okay. I had heard, there was like, that, that there was somehow in the history of this site, someone had produced yeah. a skull that has a, Clovis point stuck in the eye socket and then someone later fell I think that that projectile point was added to that skull nowadays yeah that would be a pretty stupid place if you could get to reach the <laughs> the elephant's eye you're probably in bigger trouble than, than yeah that. so yeah. someone drew, it was I, yeah. I, whatever the story I heard was it was it was questionable yeah there was a questionable in, in situ is that the word you guys use in situ in situ associated yeah um no, these guys were literally prying apart uh, already dead uh, elephants, and, and they're only partially butchered because they're in a pond, right? If you're going to drop a big animal, are you going to drop a big animal in the mud? And if you do, how are you getting it out of the mud? Yeah. That's a problem. Well, this kind of thing happens, but sure. It's yeah. not ideal. It's definitely not ideal, and especially if the animal weighs four tons. And, you know, so what are you going to do? Well, parts of it are kind of sticking out above the mud, you slice off some steaks, and you're done. Or you come onto a recently dead animal, and you think, yeah, it doesn't smell that bad. And you kind of get some meat out of it. Now, again, I emphasize that there are a few sites where it's absolutely clear that, that people were, that were preying on live animals. But then there's also sites where some of these animals got away. They got shot. There's a very famous mammoth site in southern Arizona, the Naco site. It's got eight Clovis points stuck in it. It was like a pincushion, but it wasn't butchered. It must have escaped some carnage somewhere and went off to die. It had eight points in it. Yeah. Who's got those points? Uh, the Arizona State Museum. Man, I'd pay a late night visit. <laughs> <laughs> really? I never heard that story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But they never got it. Or they never butchered they it. They never butchered it, yeah. There's, there's several others that are like that. So people were losing stuff to... Yeah. Well, you know, the animal... <laughs> I mean, these are highly mobile. These, these animals can travel. These animals can book it. And, you know, if you're not... Uh, well, one of the things that we think about the Naco site is that it was an escapee from another kill so that they were busy chowing down on the animals that they had killed and say, eh, that one, sure. yeah, yeah, fine, let it go. He ran off over he the hill. He ran off. Yeah, forget him. Got him eight times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I realize now we're going to have to have a part two, but I want to, um, because one of the things I want to talk about was, and it's another thing you talk about in your books, is the, and I don't even answer because this is part two. Sometime we can, we'll bother you. We'll wait a year and then bother you again. Um, that the love affair with these guys being these like big hunters mm, mm, and mm. missing. And I was kind of alluding to it when I got to it, what, what they were interested in at the Folsom site and your argument of that. They probably had any, like an enormously varied diet, shellfish, plant matter, small mammals that just isn't not visible. We don't see it. Mm -hmm. And then when people would find sites, they weren't looking for it. 
Yeah, I mean, there's... They, they didn't know what to think. Like, well, yeah, they're like eating little turtles. Right. They're cracking clams open, you know, whatever. Um, I'll answer you now, but we'll save it for part two. <laughs> That's fine. Because I do have one more question I'm going to ask you about. For part one? For part one, it has to do with the projectile points. Fair enough. Okay. So the anticipation of the question in part two is that, you know, we've got so many of these mammoth kills. Well, those are really easy to find archaeologically. Um, I, I spent quite a number of years working on the, uh, the high plains of West Texas. And I can tell you how many times I climbed a windmill to look out across the landscape. And I could see an old pluvial lake basin a quarter of a mile away. And I could see an elephant tusk eroding out on the surface. It just gleamed white. Oh, man, this has happened to you? Oh, yeah. And so I would just get down off the windmill, and I'd go hike over there through the dunes to look at the uh, lake basin. And sure enough, oh, there's an elephant here. And then I'd look around for artifacts. Well, that's how most of these sites were found. Yeah, There's a reason you. these guys were big game hunters. It's because archaeologists <laughs> were only looking for the big bones. They well, weren't. Well, but it's, it's excusable because what the hell else are you supposed to go by? Well, it's hard like to... Like George McJunkin, you, I mean, you're just explaining, George McJunkin saw a bunch of big bones. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not going to climb up that, that windmill tower and see, oh, look, there were a bunch of mice that were killed over there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not going to be visible to you. So it creates this little bit of... It it's creates a bias. A, yeah, it's a bias It creates a, a false narrative. Absolutely. When I was looking into this um, and, and, and writing about some of this stuff, I encountered, I can't remember who it was. I do remember who it was, but I don't want to say who it was because she didn't say it in the nicest possible way. <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was a woman um, who spoke somewhat negatively of the Bison Boys. <laughs> and she had it in her head as she explained to me that it was like this, these big macho Western guys Cowboys. who love this story of the big bison hunters, the mammoth hunters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, that's, and they all like to hunt. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And that was like, they're, they're sort of like their dream of these like hunters. And it caused just, in this mindset, caused to miss all these other things that maybe weren't as romantic to think about, which people like traveling down the coast eating clams. Right. No, she's not wrong. Uh, she's not wrong at all. Um, there's a, I mean, we all bring our own particular baggage uh, to our science, and you know, we try and <laughs> subvert the subjectiveness in in our inquiries, right? Uh, we want to go where the evidence will take us. Um, in my case, so I started doing archaeology when I was 15, and I was working on a Clovis site in Virginia, and I remember how desperate we were to find mammoth bones. Because, well, if it's a legitimate Clovis site, there's got to be a dead elephant here somewhere. Yeah, because they were never more than 10 feet from a dead elephant, Of course right? not, right? Um, and it was a spectacular site because it was sitting literally right on a church source. And they were making all these fabulous stone tools. Uh, and we had detailed records of literally individuals sitting there cross-legged, napping a stone tool, standing up and walking away. And you could still see the artifacts that had rained down on either side of their crossed legs. You're kidding me. And they got covered up almost immediately and it's still preserved 10,000 plus years later. And I thought, well, this is really cool, but no elephants. And I remember this was 19, so this was the second season of there, 1972, Hurricane Agnes is bearing down on the East Coast. And we are down in a pit 10, 12 feet below the surface. And we found what... That's how deep this stuff is. Oh, yeah. Well, in that particular site, yeah. yeah. We found what we thought was a mammoth vertebrae. 
And I remember how excited everybody was and how, how anxious everybody was because, you know, the hurricane's coming. We're literally right on the edge of the Shenandoah River. River's rising fast. Um, and everybody works late into the night to get this thing out of the ground. We get it back to the lab and in the sort of smoky glow of these lanterns, it gets cleaned up and we discover it's a piece of quartzite doing a really good imitation of a mammoth vertebrae. And I remember how how just busted everybody was. Oh, really? Yeah, and all the older kids got to go off and get stoned and drink. And, you know, I'm, I'm just 16. What am I doing? <laughs> um, and it really, it it was a memory for me that I, I thought to myself, why were we so disappointed? What was it about it? And what, what was it that made this site somehow inadequate that we didn't have a dead elephant in it? Yeah, yeah I got you. And so... I mean, you asked earlier, was I ever an overkiller? Well, no. I mean, that was part of my, my growing up experience as an archaeologist was I thought to myself, you know, maybe we've been letting our expectations drive the way we do our field work or the kinds of anticipations that we have for what we're going to find at an archaeological site. Maybe we need to sort of clear all that clutter out of our heads and try and think, you know, what does the record actually tell us? And to what degree is that record biased by what we're looking for as opposed to seeing what's in front of us? Before I get to my last question, uh, a thing I like to think about is that our thinking is still riddled mm. with them. And, you know, in, 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 in your, 50 years from now, people will be laughing I don't mean this in any. I don't mean this as an insult. Fifty years from now, people will be laughing at some of your assumptions. I I, I will be disappointed if they don't. Uh, I will be disappointed because <laughs> you feel like they got lazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, come on, people, work hard. There's there's mistakes in here. You just got to find them. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Yeah, no, I mean, you want science to improve. You want our understanding of the past to get better, and the only way to do that is to question your assumptions. Historical inertia is a very powerful force. You think what your teachers told you to think. Um, you you go with what the conventional wisdom is, and you don't cross-examine it enough. You've got to cross-examine that conventional wisdom. A thing I've found with the people who are remarkable in this space, and I'll put you and, and, and I feel Beth Shapiro. I mean, you, you, you guys probably don't think of yourself in the same space, but, you know, interested in old stuff. Uh, <laughs> That's a good space. Um, they're not, you're not, she's not that in love with their ideas you can't be the the ideas are like it's like a thing i'm holding i'm checking it out i'm curious about it but i'm not cradling it close to my you know chest so no one can come near it well that's that's probably a hard position to hold well that was the thing that was so wonderful and frustrating about paul martin who again wonderful character he was so good at rope-a-dope that when you'd pin him down on Pleistocene overkill, he'd very quickly move away. <laughs> and he'd give you another counter-argument. He says, oh, damn it. Okay, so wait a minute. I can counter your counter. Oh, yeah. uh, and he was so great at defending his argument um, that in, in some ways it was kind of a caricature uh, because it wasn't... He, he, he's dead? Yeah, he passed away. Oh, okay. uh, gosh, a, a while ago now. Okay. Um, but again, a lovely man and and very clever and... He was so fixated on defending his theory that he didn't say, okay, well, what is the alternative, am I right? You should never be in the position of defending your theory. You should always be in the position of trying to kill it. Yeah, that's good advice. 
See, it kind of messes up the flow, but I can't resist asking you the last question. You this, want to that'd talkie? be a great place to end. <laughs> a, a, you know, I was, I was talking about remarkable hosting. A remarkable host would just be like, we just end. Okay. I'm not. Because <laughs> uh, there's one last thing I want to... I, I want. You want to go back to I want to get a better understanding, and I, and I want you to explain it to people, that uh, we just we make some different things. We, we, we have a shirt we just came out with, um, and it's it's like a very rough... It's a, it's a very rough like history of North American projectile points. Oh, okay. <laughs> All the way up to like a modern mechanical, sure. modern elk hunting point. It's, it's really rough, right? Okay. And I knew that when we put the shirt out, um, that all the know-it-alls would be like, oh, you, you forgot this, and you're so stupid, you forgot that. And so I in, in, in unveiling the design, um, which I did on a, on a platform, I'm guessing you don't spend a ton of time on, called Instagram, in unveiling the design... I have an account. Oh, you do? I have four followers. Oh, man. I'm going to blow you up. We're going to blow you up. So in unveiling the design, uh, I headed the naysayers off by saying, um, this is an approximation. There were many many false starts. Oh, go ahead. Can you pull it up? Oh, you want to see it? Yeah. Yeah. You're easy to find. We're going to find the wrestling writer who you're talking about. <laughs> no. So I say, like, the shirt's an approximation. These, some of these technologies, um, some of these technologies, uh, even like modern ones, like they kind of started and didn't catch on. And so this shirt just kind of shows like a rough outline of how these things came about. And I said, for instance, you could make a week's worth of T-shirts showing what happened from pre-Clovis to like the woodland or whatever point I made. And a lot of guys on there were like, so glad you acknowledged pre-Clovis. Which is funny because I'm sure you guys are way beyond that. But there was a debate when I was like, when I was getting curious about this and I met a mutual, a guy that you were friends with and I became friends with him, Tony Baker. Yeah. Um, When we met, I like it. He, are you reviewing the shirt? You like the shirt? Yeah, but it's, it's not in stratigraphic order. You have to have the oldest at the bottom, youngest at the top. Oh, really? Yeah, well, yeah. When you dig into a site, you don't get the oldest stuff at the top. So you got your Clovis point right there That's on top. Point. I'm not going to complain about anything else about that shirt. It's your shirt. You do whatever you well, want. I'm going to send you one. So <laughs> when, when I was dabbling in this stuff, mm. uh, there was this sort of debate where the pe- there was like people who argued, right? Clovis first. Mm-hmm. Did this idea that... that Clovis hunters were the ones that found Clovis hunters were the ones that the first Americans found or yeah, were the first Americans. And then the the counter argument, which I think won the which won, right, is that Clovis emerged as this distinctly American culture. That's absolutely true. From some other group or some some people who had some That's other the part tech, we don't know. From some other technology. That's the part we don't know. So you're absolutely right. The Clovis Point is the very first American invention, right? There's nothing in Siberia like this. There's nothing in Asia like this, okay? So that was made here, made in America. Who made it? <laughs> Do you think they stamped it made in America? <laughs> well, they should have. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're not going to go political, but it was made by immigrants, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've got this, uh, this Clovis Point. But you've also got pre-Clovis people here making stuff. And the real question is, in terms of populations, oh, what's, the, what's the relationship between the Clovis folks and the people who were here before Clovis? Are they ancestor descendant? 
Are they two different groups? Um, and here's where, once again, <laughs> that, no, broken. that's interesting, man. That one, there was that there were groups that coexisted. But we actually don't know that um, to be sure, because you know, pre-Clovis stuff we've got back now to fourteen seven. Let's just say fifteen thousand rounded off. And they didn't make that point. Nope. And Clovis folks are making this point. Was their point cooler or less cool? <laughs> um, it just varied depending on where you were. Was it? Right? What is it? Was it as crafty? Um, well, the ones at Monteverdi are pretty crafty. They yeah. Are? Yeah. You yeah. look at it and you're like, wow, that's yeah. cool. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's serious stonework. Um, so, yeah. So the question is, we as archaeologists can look at the points at a place like Monteverde and say, okay, well, that doesn't look at all like Clovis, but could they be historically related? We have no way of telling, right? Just a couple of different kinds of rocks, and they're separated by 2,000 years and several thousand miles. If we could get a genome of a pre-Clovis person, we would know for sure what the relationship was between pre-Clovis and Clovis. Because at the moment, we have a Clovis genome, and we know we've got lots of genomes... Came that, out of Montana. Exactly right. And we've got lots of genomes that are younger than Clovis. And we know basically everybody in the Americas at the genomic level is related. Now, they can be more or less distantly related, but they're all related. So the real, you know, the $64,000 question that's still lingering out there is what about earlier than Clovis? Um, we actually tried, Esky's group tried to get um, DNA out of some of the material from Monteverde and was unsuccessful. Uh, so we're still looking. Uh, I'm going to ask you what the odds are that we'll find someone. And if we do, what are the odds that it's going to melt out of the permafrost in Alaska or Siberia? <laughs> and I'll, I'll point out by another person we both know, Mike Kunz. Oh, sure. I was describing to him, like, what would be the coolest thing <laughs> that you could find? And he says, I remember him painting a picture of I'm flying along, you know, in my helicopter. In his helicopter, absolutely. And there, <laughs> sticking out of a glacier, is a damn hand. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that actually sounded like Mike. <laughs> um, yeah, that would actually be pretty cool. Um, do, we do, have, do you think we'll find something? You know, you never say never in archaeology. But, it's, but we've got, I guess the problem is, right, there's one, you got one good Clovis one? Yeah. And but here's the thing about DNA. When you're looking at a genome, you're actually looking at thousands of ancestors. Mm -hmm. Because each of those letters in that DNA alphabet, the G's, the C's, the T's, and the A's, um, are getting inherited from an expanding network of ancestors. So with a single genome, you're actually seeing lots of different populations that have contributed to the DNA of that individual. So we actually now, we just published last fall um, a... Uh, a paper which had some genomes from South America which have a signal, which we think is real, of um, a distant Australasian ancestor. So we know that there are other folks that are out there that are contributing to the DNA of Native Americans. What we don't have at the moment is a full genome of somebody who is not on that direct, um, that is pre-Clovis in age, right? And that may 
or may not be on that same Native American chain of ancestry back to Asia. Yeah. Uh, my, my gut feeling uh, is, I, my gut is I don't know. <laughs> Actually, I'm not going to make any predictions. You know, the archaeology of pre-Clovis versus Clovis is so different. You think to yourself, oh, there's got to be different people. But one of the things that we found out is that you can have very distinctive archaeological records, and yet genomically these populations are closely related. So, yeah, people do different things. Some people drive one car. Some people drive another style of car. Same thing. How much time has to go by before I email you, come back on, <laughs> and you'd be, like, really receptive to do it? A year? Um, sure, we can talk in a year. I can call you in a year. You I'll email me. you in a year. In a year, when I, in a year and whatever, in a year and three months when I get you on. June 19th, 2020. And when you come on, here's some things I'm going to ask you about. Okay. I want to ask you about uh, some of the discredited theories that have come up about who the first Americans were. Okay. I want to ask you about the idea of successional waves. Mm. That it wasn't like one group that showed up and then yep. all Native Americans, but there could have been groups that showed up and they petered out. They got killed off. They starved to death. I, and then other groups came yep, in and yep, yep, yep. replaced them. The thing about that ancient peoples were interested in what they regarded as ancient peoples and moved their stuff around a little bit. Meaning they're like, oh, that's a cool looking projectile point. And they bring it home and yeah. to their teepee and lay it with their special shit mm -hmm. that they like. Um, that's just a handful of things I want to talk about next time we have you on. All right, here's a, here's a deal that okay. we can cut. Um, I'm just now finished the uh, new edition of First Peoples in a New World. So You told me mine's obsolete now. Oh, it's horribly obsolete. Yeah, no, it's don't even read it. <laughs> well, it's too late now. It's sitting out, I told okay. you, it's sitting out on my coffee table. Well, forget everything you knew about it. Okay. Um, block it out of your mind. Um, when it comes out, let's have a conversation. How's that? Yeah, that's a good time. That's a good idea. And I'll be prompted too. Because mm. I'll see it and I'll be like, that's yeah. right, that guy. That's right. That's yeah. right. I got a coffee table that needs a book. <laughs> Thank you. Seriously, this... Uh, and I'm still going to stand by my earlier statement. My favorite guest we've ever had on, <laughs> Dr. You. David J. Meltzer, Thank SMU. You. SMU. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening again. And if I said it once, I said it a thousand times. Please go check out our feature-length documentary about hunting in America today called Stars in the Sky. You can find it at starsintheskyfilm.com. It is available for streaming and download. Again, do us yourself a good turn. Do us a good turn. Stars in the Sky. Find it at starsintheskyfilm.com. You can stream it. You can download it. And you can watch it again and again. Thank you. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. 
Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.